0: This episode of The Hungry Gardener is brought to you by The Pearl Film Company, producing high-quality creative content across all storytelling forms, including traditional TV commercials, films, television, documentaries, podcasts, and brand-integrated content. Go to thepearlfilmco.com. This episode of The Hungry Gardener podcast is brought to you by yourgrocer.com.au. Simply order online and enjoy same-day delivery right to your kitchen bench. You can choose from some of Melbourne's best independent butchers, bakers, grocers and coffee roasters and receive it all in one delivery. So skip the traffic, parking and queues and go to yourgrocer.com.au. Enter the promo code HUNGRY to receive two weeks free delivery and $20 off your first order. That's yourgrocer.com.au and remember to enter the promo code HUNGRY to receive your discount today. Hello listeners and welcome to The Hungry Gardener podcast, where I talk to passionate and inspiring guests about my two favourite topics, food and gardening. In this episode of The Hungry Gardener, we speak to Morgan Kogil from 3000 Acres. 3000 Acres is an organisation that has been set up to help empower communities with the skill and knowledge to grow fresh, healthy food. Essentially, 3000 Acres wants to see more people grow more food in more places, We spoke to Morgan, the general manager in the garden at their office at the Melbourne Food Hub. They've been working on some great projects, including a community oil press. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Also, once again, if you like us, please take the time to rate us on iTunes. And we're also looking for some interesting new food and garden related stories. So please send in any of your suggestions as we'd be only too happy to go and interview them including any of our overseas listeners. Once again, thank you for listening and remember, stay hungry. Now we're here today at the Melbourne Food Hub with Morgan from Three Thousand Acres. How you going Morgan? Very well. Thanks for having me. Well thank you for being on the on the show and the podcast. Uh, I've been meaning to have a chat to the obviously three thousand acres for a while. Can you explain what the program or the actual organization is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So three uh, 3,000 Acres is a Melbourne-based not-for-profit and we're on a mission to help more people grow more food in more places. Uh, and that sounds like a big goal and it is and that means that our work is actually intensely diverse because what it takes to help more people grow more food really depends on where you're working. And so we're always working in communities in diverse locations and supporting them to get the projects off the ground that are going to enhance urban agriculture. Because as we see it, we wanna create healthier, more resilient communities through food growing and sharing.
0: Yeah, now that's a huge, huge undertaking in many ways. How many people are involved in the organization and and what's your role as well?
1: So we have three staff, myself included. I'm the general manager, I've been around since uh, 2018, but the organization's been going since 2014. But 3,000 Acres is much more than those three staff huddled up in our office here at the Melbourne Food Hub. We uh, have a huge network of volunteers, and more than that, we work really collaboratively with other orgs in the space. And our work often takes us from everywhere from Footscray to Marula Bark, and so we end up working with really diverse communities across those spaces.
0: Okay. Can you elaborate a little bit more on some of the projects you'd be working on and... Uh, Given us an idea of the kind of projects you'd be involved in?
1: So we're known mostly for community gardens. And that's usually that we love to work with a community group that said, yep, we want to get a garden up. And we'll come in and say, great. Um, We're experts in the bureaucracy and the admin of that because most people only ever start one community garden in their life. So it's hard to become an expert on things like insurance and incorporation, planning permits, uh, where to get your soil from. And so we'll come in and work with the community to facilitate a co-design process. And what I mean by that is that we're bringing the horticultural experience and the experience of some of the management difficulties of community gardens and the community's bringing the ideas for that design. So we marry those things up together. So they end up with a garden that matches all their desires for the space, but that is also going to work from a horticultural perspective that it's, um, I can't tell you the number of community gardens we've seen that we haven't been a part of designing, which are placed in deep, deep shade. And then uh, everyone's surprised when the community has not formed around garden beds where all you can grow is parsley. Yes. So, uh, That's something we're known for, is working with communities on those gardens. But our work also goes across community composting, helping people see what's possible in a backyard setting. So, for example, tours and workshops in productive backyards. Um, All the way across to annual harvesting events, like our Olives to Oil Festival, where we harvest unwanted street trees and have it pressed into olive oil. So really diverse things that help people see the value of the resources in their areas but also find more places to grow whether that's their backyard or their balcony or their local community garden
0: okay now you've got a relatively small team Mm -hmm. and you're trying to take on I think a lot like a huge undertaking how do you choose the projects that you're working on
1: That's a tough one because uh, I think if it were left to me, I'd say yes to everything and that would be problematic. And luckily, I have two staff members who have worked in the urban agriculture space in the US and the UK and come with a wealth of experience of what works and what doesn't. And we would never want to replicate something um, that is already in existence. So we often find ourselves saying, you know what, that's better left to this organization who's doing that work really well. But um, a lot of that comes down to where we're able to get the support for it. So we often have 20 project ideas in our head and it's waiting for the right council or the right statutory body to say, yep, that's something we wanna be a part of, but also finding the right community. So a whole lot of our work is a community member coming to us and saying, "Uh, we have a particular project in mind, we'd really like to do it, but we're not yet incorporated, we don't have insurance, could we partner and design this project together? Okay. We'll always say yes to that because we want to support communities to design their own solutions.
0: How much of it's actually people coming and knock on the door and saying we need help or are you going out there and actually suggesting this would be a good approach?
1: Or I would say it's about 50-50 that most of the new projects we start are a community coming to us and we'll provide that support. The rest of the time is us going to council and saying, we think that this would be very valuable in your area. We've seen that there's this particular problem, the community have told us that, and here's our solution to it. So for example, um, getting council grants where we know that there's a lot of people composting in a particular area and a lot of people living in apartments. So the gap that we're filling is helping people who are just composting for themselves scale up to be able to take waste from local apartments uh, and that requires a lot of facilitation and training to help people have that confidence to become a compost hub. And the council can see the value in that because they're helping yep. their residents who are composters and their residents who are feeling anxious about food waste and can't do anything with it.
0: So in terms of value and funding, what are some of the, the hurdles that you come up against? And, and obviously, quite often councils will go, that's a great idea. But in reality, what are some of the things that you find stop a lot of the projects moving forward?
1: I'd say that this is a chronically underfunded sector uh, in terms of an understanding of the costs involved. So for example, we'll often have um, a piece of land offered to us and the idea is just get a community garden going and we have to be the buzzkill that says, wow, that's gonna be really expensive. This is a site that doesn't have mains water access, so we're gonna have a huge bill to get it connected. Um, It's a site that needs to be fenced or that where there might be soil contamination and the beds need to be raised, and those costs just add up and add up, and it's um, unexpected for a lot of groups that would love to see a project get up. So I think the underfunding is an issue, but equally um, so is the understanding of what's possible and what sort of land is available, that we'll often find that there's a great piece of land and the community's really involved in getting a project going there. Uh, but that uh, council's not ready to make that commitment that that piece of land should be turned into an urban agriculture site they might have other ideas for it or um, there might be a lack of understanding in council of what department is responsible for making that decision so it gets bounced around and bounced around for two years and the community has lost interest by the time the the answer comes through
0: yeah how often have you been asked to do things that are not been on say council land as well is that a from a the private sector, is that something that you get involved in or is that um, not something that the, the organisation deals with?
1: It's a really interesting one. So I would say that there's three main landholders in uh, Victoria where we work, councils, so they'll, you know, public parks and they'll often have tracts of land they haven't done something with, statutory bodies, Vic Roads, Vic Track, Melbourne Water. They're coming along for the ride as well in terms of understanding they, they have this underutilised resource and we're facing a climate emergency, how could that be used in a better way? And then there are private landholders, not just people who have their own home and might want to grow some food, but for example, developers um, who are building estates. And we think that that's a really interesting one where um, developers can do things very badly and and be very unsustainable. um, And where is the opportunity to ask and demand more in terms of the quality of the housing that they're providing, the access to services and how sustainable all of that is. So with developers that we think are doing the right thing, um, we're willing to to work on long-term community gardens. So for example, we have one in Clyde North where it was a really diverse community coming in from around Australia and around the world. And here was an opportunity to build a permanent community garden where people could come together and get to know their neighbors. And that's been hugely successful, and I've been really excited to be a part of that, of seeing a community that was quite disconnected, people traveling a very long way to work, not talking to each other, and here having a space where they've come together to grow diverse food crops.
0: Yeah. In terms of that um, example, there sometimes can be an idea of what the, the kind of person that is involved in a community garden. Is that stereotype true? And, and can it be changed?
1: It's a funny one. Uh, often before going into a meeting, my colleagues and I will decide how crunchy granola we are on that day in terms of uh, the sort of, sort of things that we might talk about with that particular group, that there's a big difference between myself on a personal level where I've got bees and quails and all the rest of it crammed into a tiny little backyard, and then the average person who might want to get into food growing and might be a little newer to it. Uh, And I think one of the best examples of that was in my first few weeks on the job, I was helping facilitate a session in a Brunswick East garden we built. And there was a 90-year-old Greek man who was intensely experienced in food growing, explaining how to grow tomatoes to a 20-year-old hipster who lived in a local apartment and had never grown anything in her life. And that to me was why that garden existed, of bringing these people together across generations and cultures who would not have talked to each other otherwise, who lived very different lives and had different understandings of food. Um, And uh, really, in a lot of cases, I do see community gardeners break that stereotype in terms of who's involved. Increasingly, it's young people. Our audience at 3,000 Acres is predominantly women aged 18 to 35 who are hearing about the sustainability issues and saying, that's something I want to be involved in. Uh, and that's really exciting to me to see that picture change.
0: So if you did want to get involved, what's, what's the way someone would do that?
1: So our website is www.3000acres.org. And that gives a sense not only of the programs that we run, but an opportunity to get in touch as well. Um, as well as we're really active on, on the socials, always sending out the different workshops and events we have going and always want new people to get in touch, to be involved with those yeah. ones.
0: How would you like to see the space change?
1: Have you got all day? (laughs) No,
0: I'm interested. I really, you know, where do you see the future?
1: So I want to see all cities, but because Melbourne is my city, I want to see Melbourne be um, an absolute advocate for urban agriculture as a vehicle to change our food systems as a whole, that we know people's behaviour changes when they grow food in terms of their understanding of that that whole system. And so we need urban centres to be partners and sisters to rural areas in being responsible and thinking to the future of how, how are we all going to eat and live on this planet uh, and make it be workable, both from an environmental perspective in terms of our capacity to eat in uh, a future with climate change, but beyond that to be more culturally sensitive and inclusive in the way that we think about food so that no one is going hungry and everyone has access to culturally appropriate food so that you couldn't, um, you know, move to Australia and suddenly find that you're unable to grow anything that's familiar to you from home. Yeah. So I think urban centers have such a role to play in that. And I am really scared that, uh, for so many people living in urban areas, you wouldn't come into contact with a farm. Yeah. You don't have a good sense of how food is grown, and we need to change that immediately if we want people's behavior to change.
0: Yeah, it's also a great way for people to connect
1: because, mm.
0: you know, food's what connects people. Um, totally. And if they can come together, um, it creates community. That's hence the name. You know, <laughs> yeah, community precisely.
1: Garden. And, I mean, I can't even, in a, in a personal sense as well, that I think about I was not a food grower growing up. It's only been the last 10 years of my life where that's been important. And how much more I get to know my neighbours when I have excess quail eggs and excess silverbeet. So,
0: saying that, what led you to become a gardener, per se? Right?
1: Yeah, great question. Because mm. um, I certainly, I did not grow up uh, growing food. I didn't even grow up cooking. I never cooked an onion until I was 22 and realised it was a revelation for pasta sauce. Um, <laughs> But I was halfway through law school and on my tiny little back in my tiny balcony in Carlton decided to grow a tomato bush and was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. Why did I study law? This is amazing. I've brought these tomatoes into being. Uh, And that was it for me. It just spiraled from there into all these years later, um, not only working for 3000 acres, but in my personal life, trying to grow as much of my own food as I can for my household.
0: Now, you mentioned that you did law. How did you, You've ended up in this space, which I gather is probably not a high-paying industry. What is it that you get out of working in this space?
1: Yeah, thank goodness I didn't end up working in corporate law. A lot more dollars, but a lot less satisfaction. Um, and look, I always saw myself in the not-for-profit world of, my perspective is if you've had the the privileges and the opportunities that I've had in life, you owe something back to the world and you've got to work out how are your skills best used to try and fix all these problems we've created and make people's lives better. And um, for me, I feel very passionately about creating a more sustainable world and a more fair one. And here was an opportunity at 3000 to marry my personal enjoyment of growing food and my professional passion for really effective not-for-profits that say... This is not good enough and we need better in this space and I, I really see that happening in urban agriculture and, and the community getting excited about the opportunities that exist for food growing in urban areas.
0: Okay. Now in terms of projects you've got coming up, can you fill this in with any that you've got say in the next 12 months or for 3,000 acres?
1: So, uh, so many exciting things happening but I think the one that we find people get pretty stoked about is one I mentioned before, our olives to oil. So, we went, the first year, we told people, go and harvest olive trees in backyards, along the streets, and parks, um, bring it to us, and we'll have it pressed into olive oil. Because you can't turn on an olive press for a small amount of olives, and so we thought, this is a, a community effort. First response um, in that first year, people were really confused by it, and they were like, wait, this is free, and how are we going to do this? and uh, so we had less of a turnout, but this past year we had over 500 people participate and harvest 2,495 kilos of olives that were otherwise going into green waste. Yeah. We had people saying, oh, I met my gran- uh, the neighbor for the first time saying, oh, can I harvest your olives? And now we're going to have a dinner together and really beautiful organic connections over a resource that people didn't know existed in their areas. So we're really scaling that up in 2020. We have a mobile olive press so that people can see that process of of how you press olives and kind of um, share in that joy of having their own Footscray olive oil or having their own Brighton olive oil or wherever they're doing their harvesting. So I'm really excited for what that looks like in May, June, 2020, which is our harvesting season in Melbourne. But beyond that, I think the big focus for us in 2020 is continuing some of the work we've started with backyard and front yard food growing spaces. As someone who is um, a millennial, a cursed avocado-eating millennial, uh, and possibly a long-term renter, we think that there's a really uh, terrible problem with equity access to space to grow. Increasingly, young people do not own their own homes. They're quite transient. They move from rental to rental. And we think that this is an issue where we want to encourage people however possible and councils to make it more possible for people to grow in their own space. Uh, and so we're continuing that journey of what does that look like for encouraging backyard food growers?
0: Yeah, that's a hard one, though, because you've got to change the culture. Um, and I'll give the example of my front yard and my nature strip where I'm growing food. And I get stopped by a lot of people saying, oh, that's a great idea. But every so often you'll get someone going, oh, that's ugly. You know, changing the mindset is going to be one of the biggest challenges, I believe, um, and getting councils on board. Totally. Um, which will happen if we, as a community, actually you know, put the pressure on.
1: Absolutely, I think put the pressure on and also be the advocates and the first, um, first responders in the sense of you're growing food in your front yard and you're providing that demonstration. Sure. Uh, and I suspect we probably live in different areas because I'm in, I'm in Kit in the inner north here in Melbourne where it's very normal to see food growing in the front yard and it only probably took half the street before that tipped over and people thought this is an ordinary part Of urban life. And I'm hoping that more and more uh, areas start to look like that and that we say, whoa, whoa, we're growing lawn in a climate emergency? We're going to water that? Nah. This should be food growing and sharing and an opportunity to respond sustainably and and share food with the people around us.
0: Yeah. It's one of the things that I've come up against in my time is the terminology as well, the idea of community garden and people's understanding of it can sometimes mean that it's a council driven and they wait for someone actually from the council to propose this idea where I'd love to see more people actually start knocking on the door and saying, hey, we can actually do this and lead from themselves.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: So would they come to you, for example, and go, all right, well, we wanna actually create a community garden. They're the tools obviously that you provide
1: We'd really love that. And I mean, we provide a toolkit on our website for people to go and do that themselves. But the reality we've seen is that it's pretty tough to work through that bureaucracy that, as I said before, you'll send an email to council and it'll get passed around their property department and their environment team and their community development team because no one knows whose responsibility it is at some councils. So we like to help those community groups get organized, get all the things together that they need to demonstrate to the landholder that this is a legit proposal and that they should support this and also to find the funding to be able to establish that space. So I think definitely it's about um, communities feeling the right to demand more from public spaces and say, yes, this is something we want in our communities. But then also having that support, which hopefully we can provide as an organization to have more productive conversations with council to get things pushed through.
0: What's your biggest bugbear in...
1: My bugbear, Yeah, well, you know, yeah, the is thing that
0: annoys you the most.
1: <laughs> I think that must be an Australianism that <laughs> I haven't picked up on at the time. Bugbear. Oh, goodness. I could probably go for days. I think it's um, the thing I get stuck on the most at work is the undervaluing of this space and this work and the not understanding um, just how much work goes into it and how much knowledge there is. In creating really beautiful urban agriculture spaces Um, you know where I've uh, mentioned before coming along to a community garden that's just been plonked down and it's four beds in deep shade or on a steep hill where growing isn't possible and then there's the opportunity for council to point to that and say see community gardens don't work and it's not true it's just a poorly designed community garden that's um, failed to create a real community around it so I get really frustrated with the dismissal of the significance of growing food in public spaces just because there's been one setback or one failure.
0: It's interesting you say that because most people would look at the space and go and look at the success due to the plants etc but quite often it's the people involved and how passionate they are and they don't have to be the world's greatest gardeners um, Mm -hmm. to produce a productive garden.
1: Totally and I think that Um, There is that real tension between people's understanding of producing large amounts of food and that that's what the ambition is, as opposed to a garden where you're aiming to bring diverse people together um, that would not have spoken to each other otherwise. And so that community development aspect cannot be undervalued in terms of um, people knowing their neighbors. That's one of the big threats moving forward is, say, we have a really hot day and there's an older person living isolated, doesn't know one of their neighbors to ask for help. And councils are worried about that in terms of emergency preparedness, that we don't have neighbours we can ask for help. How can we cut through that and have people talking across cultures, across generations, so that we do have those community connections again?
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you, you're, you just learned how to cook <laughs> when you were like 22 or whatever, none. Yeah. Do you cook much now and, and what would you do? What would you cook me if I came around to your house now? Oh.
1: I have a bit of a sneaky dish that I I cook everyone who comes around and I pretend like, oh, I'm just throwing this together. But realistically, I know it's my very impressive quinoa hashu. It's got some sultanas in there, a lot of nuts. It's um, very like Eat Lancet diet in terms of being quite um, sustainable. So I have become quite a cook. I have to say I'm quite the Ottolenghi fiend, which fits in with my Northkit hipster lifestyle quite well. Uh, but it's amazing how quickly that transforms. And I really do put that down to being a food grower. I had never eaten silver beet; Couldn't tell you what it was before I'd grown it in my garden. And now it's a, a weekly staple that I eat. It completely changes your diet and the relationship you have to food.
0: So where are you growing your food now? Do you grow at home or do you have a community garden that you belong to? <laughs>
1: Great question. I I have both. So most of my growing is in my rental backyard. So it's about seven by 17 meters. So your typical shotgun house, really skinny workers cottage. And uh, people who come over are like, wow, this is every square inch you've made use of. But as I mentioned, I've got the beehive crammed in there um, as well as my quails down the back, but then intensively growing as well. And the landlord... I think thinks we're a very wholesome household and he's quite willing to put up with it, which has been nice. He buys our honey from us, so that's always a treat.
0: So, how long you had your bees for? I've
1: been a beekeeper for four years now, and it's a mother daughter hobby. So, my mum lives uh, in the peri urban fringe in Warrandyke, and we have most of our hives on her property where they're able to forage along the Yarra River. But it's nice to have one in Northcote as well. I, I have a lot of people react. Um, with shock that in as built up an area as I live that the bees are successful but indeed they are they've got plenty to forage on around Northcote
0: yeah now thank you so much for your time today it's been awesome if people listening want to find out more information and get involved or um, best place for people to to visit would be the website Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. So www.3000acres.org, or you can email us straight on hello at 3000acres.org. And we'd love to hear from everybody, your ideas, your thoughts, your plans for your own community.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me. Awesome.
0: This episode of the Hungry Gardener podcast is brought to you by yourgrocer.com.au. Simply order online and enjoy same day delivery right to your kitchen bench. You can choose from some of Melbourne's best independent butchers, bakers, grocers, and coffee roasters and receive it all in one delivery. So skip the traffic, parking, and queues and go to yourgrocer.com.au. Enter the promo code HUNGRY to receive two weeks free delivery and $20 off your first order. That's yourgrocer.com.au and remember to enter the promo code HUNGRY to receive your discount today. Been listening to the Hungry Gardener podcast with me, Fabian Capamola. For information or to be notified of the latest episodes, be sure to head to the website, thehungrygardener.com.au. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch and tell us your thoughts. It might be suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear us discuss. Shout outs to Ben Hodson from the Pearl Film Company for producing the show. Frank Aloy from Frank Aloy Design for the logo and the branding. And to Leiden for the intro music track.
1: Thanks for listening.